wonderful Easter Lent season, and we want to encourage you to celebrate Lent, which is to give something up, and just as a reminder that Christ, Christ has given up his life for you. And so you can give something up, give something up that you would do on a daily basis. You know, sometimes somebody will give up, they'll go, I'm going to give up coffee. And I'll think to myself, I'll say, I didn't know you were a coffee drinker. They go, oh, I'm not a coffee drinker. That's why I'm giving it up. Like, that does not count. That doesn't count. It's just like something that you do on a regular, like, daily basis. That's what we're talking about. So that you're always reminding yourselves and preparing yourself uh, for the coming, uh, for, for uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We talked a little bit about last week about there's this idea of the event of Easter versus the season of Easter. And if all we ever do is we celebrate the event of Easter, which it will be an event, um, it's historically been true, um, but we sometimes can miss the season of, of Easter that leads up to it. And really Lent is one of the things that I think can prepare us for that. The other thing is that we're doing here is as, as Easter approaches, we're going to be focusing in on prayers from the Father, sorry, from the Son to the Father. And so there's several times when Jesus goes away to pray. It just says that he went away to pray. That we're not privy to those conversations. Oh, how we would love to know what those conversations were. But they were not recorded. They were not meant for us to know those. And so then I'm really curious about the times when it says that Jesus the Son prayed to the Father. I want to know what those prayers are. And so we're, we, we looked at one last week. We're going to spend three weeks in what's called the High Priestly Prayer, which comes out of John chapter 17. And it's Jesus' longest recorded unbroken prayer i wonder what that's about what's he going to say to the father and by the way this is going to be the moments right before he goes to the cross what does he say in that moment so we're gonna spend three weeks on that first week this week and then two more weeks and then we're going to then uh on palm sunday we're going to look at uh, jesus in the garden of gethsemane when he prays to the father there and by the way all of this is happening now all of this is happening in the last hours that lead up to and then on Good Friday, we're going to look at the, uh, the, the prayers from the Son to the Father on the cross. And so as we do that and as we uh, prepare for that, uh, especially as we look at the high priestly prayer, there's something really amazing about it. I mean, all, we say all of the Bible is amazing. But there are, are two things that I think about the high priestly prayer that, that put it, not set, it's not like, oh, this is, now this is really the Word of God. It's all really the Word of God, but just puts it into this different category. And the first thing is, like, there's a sacredness whenever you get to, like, listen in on somebody else's prayer. You want to know what people are concerned about? Like, you listen to them pray. And if you could listen to the words and that they pray that they never audibly speak, you would know even more about their soul. When they approach God, what are their requests? What are they talking about? That's what I want to know. You want to know somebody, you listen to them in those moments. And there's something about walking in on a prayer or listening to a prayer that it's just like there's this sense that all of a sudden we're on sacred ground. Have you ever walked into a room and people were praying? You're like, oh, like, oh man, what do I, what do I, well, they're praying, just bow your head. Like, I'm just, all right, I'm just, I'm going to jump right in. You don't know what to do. Why? Because you, you feel like you've walked in on this sacred place. This last week on, on Monday, I had some uh, lunch with some pastor friends, and we went to Dos Coyotes uh, because it's tasty. And, uh, and as well, we were all on one bill, so they had, we, all, we had the one number, and there was four of us. So they brought, out, they brought out the three plates, but then there was still one plate. So he goes, oh, here's the three, and I'm going to go get your other one. 
And we thought like, oh, we think we can get the prayer in between the time that she goes and comes back with the plate. And so then my friend is it was actually it was it was his food that was was not there. My friend says he says, I'll I'll, I'll pray. OK, you pray. Bless the food, man. And so he blesses the food. And he's a prayer. Like he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. I'm not, I'm not gonna just be like a rubber dub dub. Thanks for the grub. I mean, I'm gonna really bless the food. And we got to the point in this. I was like, man, I just feel like she's back with that fourth plate. Like, <laughs> I feel like the 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 appropriate time has passed, and she's back with that fourth plate. And so I look up from prayer, and there she is, just holding the plate, like just like waiting. Because she, like, what is she gonna do? Like, she knows she's. She just went to go get the food. She's walked back. These four guys are praying. One doesn't have his food. She doesn't know. Like she, For whatever reason, it seems like it's inappropriate just to put the food there. It's inappropriate just to walk away. And so she just thought, like, I'll just stand here until they're done. And so uh, so I looked up from the prayer, and I saw her just standing there. I was like, oh, so he can just. So I took the plate, and I put it in front of my friend very quietly. And he said, amen. He's like, my food's here. And, uh, but there is. Isn't there just something sacred when you walk in on a prayer, when you listen on a prayer? Much different than like when you, like, when you walk in on a conversation with, with you know, people just talking. You just, I'll just jump right into that conversation. But when people, when you walk in on a conversation that's happening either between a person or people in God, you feel like, man, this is sacred ground. So we're going to get to do that with the high priestly prayer for sure. That's the one thing that makes it sacred. The other thing that I think really kind of sets it apart in sort of a different category is one is that this is a this is a long, long prayer right before Jesus goes to the cross. It's interesting because when you say, what did Jesus pray right before he goes to the cross? Everybody says, oh, it's the prayer in Garden of Gethsemane. And I would say, well, yes, that is definitely closer to. But the high priestly prayer is not far behind. I mean, this is within, you know, hour or hours possibly of of his final prayer in the garden before he goes to the cross. And what's interesting about this one is actually in the the garden, we don't get much. It's a short prayer. It's a powerful prayer, but it's not a lot. At least that's what's recorded. Here we get, as it's it's, in most of your Bibles, all, all of your Bibles, it's a whole chapter worth of like, what is his prayer? And I go, and you want to know what people are concerned about? Not only, like, not only listen to their prayers more specifically than that, you listen to their prayers and their concerns before they're about to die. All of a sudden, things are brought into focus. And so you want this sacred moment. We're going to have this sacred moment in, in the high priestly prayer where we not only get to, to eavesdrop into a prayer from the Son to the Father, but we're going to get to listen to a so someone pray right before they die. And they go, well, I want to know what's on his heart, what's on his mind. So with that, we're going to jump in. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to, to John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I think if you're 
reading this, I think the, the first question that would come to your mind may be, well, what are these words? Uh, every time I see this, what are those words? Like, what are, when he said these words, and actually if you just backed up a few verses, you would read those words. As Jesus is actually trying to prepare his disciples for his departure, that's the whole thing. He's getting ready to go. He's been trying to tell them, I have to go. You can't come with. And he's trying to prepare them, knowing that they're just not going to be prepared. Have you ever had this? Maybe somebody is like, um, somebody's been diagnosed with a disease. And the doctor said, you've got three years to live. And you can see like the, the slow kind of descent into death. And it's interesting when, like, that last week hits, people go, we just weren't ready. You know, the doctor told us three years ago, told us a year ago. We saw it just it getting worse and worse and worse. But when death actually sits in and it takes, and it takes hold, people have this sense of, like, but we were still caught off guard. We just weren't ready. And I think there's a lot of that. You know, Jesus is like, I'm preparing you. I'm preparing you. I'm telling you. I got to go. I got to go. But... You're just not going to be ready. And one of the things he has says just before this, he has says, he says, you're y'all going to abandon me, which is exactly what you want to hear somebody say right before they go to die. Right. Y'all are going to scatter. And I'm going to fill in some blanks here. And when you do later on, you're going to feel bad about that because you're going to think that I died alone. And it's one thing. It's one thing to die. It's another thing to die a brutal death. But what's, what's the worst of the worst is to die a brutal death alone. And he says, you think that, you're, that I'm going to be alone, but I want to encourage you, I'm not going to be alone. You're going to abandon me, but I'm not going to be alone because the Father is going to be with me. And he says this, he goes, and I say this, he goes, the reason why I say this, the reason I say this is because I want you to know that you have peace in me. And the world, you're going to have trub- tribulations. The world is going to bring you trouble, but I bring you peace. In the world, you have trouble. In me, you have peace. With the world comes trouble. With, the, with Jesus comes peace. And then he says, and I want you to know I have overcome the world. In other words, what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, in me, you have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. And I want to let you know is that the peace that you have in me is greater than the trouble you'll have in the world. And even though it's going to seem like here in a few moments, in a mere moment, it's going to feel like the troubles that are in the world are greater than the peace that you have in me. I'm here to tell you now that I have overcome the world. And no matter what's happening in your life, to the disciples, to you, that the troubles of the world will never be greater than the peace that's offered to you in Jesus. And you may think to yourself, well, it doesn't feel like that's true. It actually feels like the troubles are overwhelming the peace. And I go, yeah, I know that it could feel like that. And that's exactly why Jesus says, I have to tell you this. Because he knows that we are, we have the propensity to another reaction. It doesn't feel like that. Well, it didn't feel like that to the disciples, which is exactly why Jesus says, that's why I have to tell you. It's going to feel like the world's overwhelming you, but it's not actually, because my peace is greater than the world. Why? Because I have overcome the world. After he had said those things, he turns to the Father, 
And then he says, the hour is here. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I talked a lot about that last week and knowing uh, knowing that I was going to be able to talk about this idea a little bit on two weeks in a row. But this idea that, as I said last week, is that the hour has come. The hour is referring to the crucifixion. The hour has come. Jesus before this has been saying continually, continually, the hour is coming. There's coming an hour. My hour is not here. There's coming an hour. There will be an hour. An hour is on its way. And then as soon as the Passover hits, it, it, he, so he, he talks differently. All of a sudden now he's saying, it's, it's here. So it goes from hours coming, hours on its way, one day, one day, and then all of a sudden it changes to the hour is now upon us. Like this is the hour. This is the reason why Jesus has come. And the hour not referring to the crucifixion, sorry, not referring to the resurrection, the hour referring to the crucifixion. And he says that in that, this is the hour to glorify your son. And I said last week, this idea that if we were going to write this story, we did not write this story, but if we were going to write this story, we would not have the glory at the crucifixion, the moment of the, of the glory of the crucifixion. We, sorry, the, yeah, we wouldn't have it there. We would have it at the, the moment of the resurrection, right? That's the glory. That's the victory. I mean, he's out of the tomb. Everybody's celebrating. There's vindication, Jesus has been vindicated. Death has been defeated. All of that. And that's a great story, but that's the problem is that's just not what we're told. We're told that the glory is at the cross. And I submitted to you last week that I think that, G, that, that God was more glorified at the cross than he was the resurrection. And the reason I gave you for that was I said because because. When God's character is revealed, he is glorified. And the more clearly his character is revealed, the more glorified he will be. And I think, and I think was what's pointing here in the text, is that the communication is that he is most, his, his character is most greatly revealed at the cross. It's his wrath, but it's also his, his mercy. It's his justice, but also his forgiveness. It's his love, it's his patience, it's his endurance. I think it's most clearly explained and shown to us at the cross, which is why he's the most glorified. His character is most revealed to us at the cross, which is why he is the most glorified at the cross. Now, I didn't have time last week to take you there, but I knew I had two weeks, and so I'm going to take you there this morning. I want to take you to a place in, in, in Exodus where actually this is, this is lived out. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me quickly to Exodus chapter 33. And this is going to be 18. Now Moses has already met with God uh, on Sinai. He's already gotten the Ten Commandments. Those have been broken. The, command, the covenant's been broken. He's getting new ones, a new covenant, powerful moment. And then in verse 9, 18 of chapter 33, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, referring to God, and he said, I will make I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so Moses as he's having this meeting with God his prayer is show me your glory. Which is actually isn't that a great prayer? God I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And that's the prayer. Show me your glory. And God's response is what? 
show you my goodness. My go- I'll make my goodness pass before you. Notice what he doesn't say. Show me your glory. God's like, oh, you saw the great acts, right? You saw, didn't you see the, the parting of the Red Sea? Didn't you see all the locusts? What more glory do you want? Didn't you see all the livestock die? Didn't you see the Nile turn red? Didn't you see these magnificent actions? What more glory do you want? Just show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my glory. I'm going to cause my my goodness to come before you. And that's exactly what happens. And you just jump down a few verses, um, down to verse 5 of chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And so Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. He says, I'm going to cause my my goodness to pass before you. And then when God shows him his glory, what does he show him? His characteristics, right? His attributes. Mercifulness, his graciousness. He's slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Faithful, but also at the same time just, right? He's a just God. He goes, I don't take sin lightly. I, I hold accountable. And so it's interesting. He says, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to pass my goodness before you. I'm going to reveal myself to you, but, but, but by who I am. Because when I reveal my character, I am glorified is what God's saying. And then he does most clearly. And then what does, what does Moses do? He worships. That's actually... That's a, that's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful cycle. God rever- reveals his character. He reveals who he is. And because he does that, he is glorified. And when he is glorified, we worship. His character is revealed. He is glorified. We respond in worship. You think about like something, you're going through something like, man, I just... I don't feel like I can go another day. I can't do it. And you pray to God in the morning, God, would you see me through this day? God, would I know you as the God of endurance, of steadfastness? And God, in a crazy way, like strengthens you for the day. And you realize at the end of the day, you've been strengthened for the day. You made it. You don't know how, but you made it. And you go, what? God, you revealed your character as the steadfast one. And you were glorified. And now I worship. Or you're going through some pain or a physical pain and you go, God, I can't stand this pain. God, would you would you either, you know, through natural and supernatural ways, bring an end to the pain? And you experience him as the healer. And so he's revealed himself and he is glorified and then you worship him. This is the cycle. And so, so we see that in Exodus. We see this. And so he said, I want God, would, God the Father, I want you to glorify 
Glorify me, and I'm going to glorify you. That's the prayer. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority, referring to Jesus, authority over or the Son of Man, it was the same person, so authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so this idea goes, you have given the Son people, And Jesus is saying, I have been over them, and you have given them to me for a purpose, that I would give them eternal life. And then he says, this is what eternal life is, to know the Father and to know the Son. Which is interesting, right? Have you ever thought about what life is like after this? What's life like after this? People may ask me those questions. They may ask you those questions like, "What's, what's the afterlife like? Are you a Christian? Yeah. You believe in the afterlife? Yeah. What's that like? We get all sorts of questions, right? What are we going to do up there? We've got a job that we just hang out. Is, like, is it like eternal retirement? Like, what is it? Who else is going to be there? That's what I want to know. Who's going to be there? Um, you know, maybe questions like, well, will I, will I have all my questions answered in heaven? I got a list of questions of God, and do I just get to the gate? Do I submit those, and I get those back later? Do I have a conversation? Like, how does that work? You may have questions about the afterlife, questions like, do calories count? Uh, maybe not. Who knows? I don't know. Do, do all dogs go to heaven? But it's interesting because there is this general consensus that, that, that heaven is a desirable place to be. Right? And so you, you could go to work or to friends tomorrow or family and just ask them a question. Um, now, they may not believe in heaven, but if they, even if they, they didn't, it was, if, if there was a heaven, would you want to go there? To which they may say, oh, yeah. You want to go to heaven? Yeah, I'd love to go to heaven. Then you might ask, uh, actually, because that's actually, by the way, that's an easy softball question. But actually, I think the more problematic probing question is the question that would follow that is why now you might get a universal answer of yes to do you want to go to heaven you're going to get a plethora of answers as to why people would want to go to heaven why do you want to go they might say something like well it's it's not hell you know well okay that that's a good thing right because they go i just know that hell's a bad place and heaven's a good place so it's not hell and you go well yeah okay why would you want to go? Like, why heaven? Maybe no, no more pain. Okay, that's good. No more, uh, no more tears. Uh, I get to see people I haven't seen in years. Get to be restored relationally with some people. Maybe um, there's no more stress. I'm free of this world. And you get actually a lot of answers of why someone would want to go to heaven. And these are my questions. I'm like, but so you think heaven's good, but then why is it good? And it's interesting because a lot of times when they say it's, it's good, they'll say it's good and they'll give you reasons why they think it, should, it would be good. It would be good because I'm in pain now and I want to be in a place where there's no pain. Go, well, that's a good thing. But I go, but, but is that what we have been given here? It's not, actually. And I think too often, unfortunately, in, in Christianity, what, we, what we've done is we've taken Jesus 
as the, the, the way, the means in which we obtain eternal life. Right? Want to go to heaven? Yeah, you need Jesus. But the problem is, which I believe that statement's very true, but the problem is, is with just that statement is that Jesus becomes the means in which we obtain something else. And this is how, unfortunately, too often we talk about eternal life. Notice that Jesus, when he says this, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and this is how they will get eternal life, by knowing the Father and by knowing the Son. He doesn't say that, although I think that statement's true. He doesn't say that. He goes, and this is eternal life. This is what eternal life is. It's to know God the Father and to know God the Son. That's what eternal life is. Because you're like, I don't know what eternal life is like. like. Well, you may not know a lot of things, but I do know this because Jesus was very, very clear. It's to know the Father and it's to know the Son. That's what eternal life is. And it's interesting because we want to maybe change it into something else. But, and don't miss this because this means what he is saying here really is that I'm going to define eternal life not by what you will do, but I'm going to define eternal life by relational, like relational status. It means that eternity is more about relationships, knowing, than it is even about what we do. Or even, even about being pain-free or calorie-free or will the dogs be there, but about something relational. And we get this at some level, right? When somebody dies and somebody with death is eminent and they're, they're preparing to leave this world, what do they do? They call for those that they love and that love them to come around them. That's what they want. It would be really odd for us, right? Would it not be if it would be really odd if, if, if somebody were dying and you go, what, what would you like? Would you like your, your kids to come in here? No, I'm good, thanks. What about your friends from the community? Nope. What about um, people from the church? I'm good. Your spouse? Nope. Grandchildren? Nope. What, like, what do you want? Could you, could you go get my coin collection? Just one last time. I want to feel the richness. I want to look at them. They're so laid out, so beautiful. We would think to ourselves, something's not right here. Right? And rightfully so. See, we get, we get that at some level, eternity, that it really is all about relationships. And this is actually what Jesus is saying. It's relationships. This is eternal life. The problem is, actually, I think a lot of times in Christianity is we don't, we don't think that's enough. And I'm just being honest. Like, we don't think that Jesus, like, to know Jesus, to know the Son, and to know the Father is enough. And so when we think as we're, we're trying to market it, for lack of better terms, or we're trying to sell it to everybody else, we got to add everything else. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, we got this, this brochure. I mean, it's this wonderful place. I mean, Olympic-sized swimming pool, streets of gold. Calories, yeah, the calories, they don't count. There's this and there's that. And then it's like, bum, 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 bum. And oh, by the way, Jesus is there too. 
And I think the reason why is because we don't feel like to have an eternity with just Jesus, with just the Father and just the Son, is enough. But Jesus says this is what it is. I thought like this week, like if you were wanting to hang out with a friend and you you approached them and you said, like, I thought I thought maybe on Saturday night we could just yeah, we just get together. And their response was, hmm. Who else is gonna be there? I, I don't I don't know. I mean I guess we can invite other people. I mean Yeah. That'd be good. Why, what do you think we're going to do? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, just like, will we figure that out? Hmm. Maybe if we could go bowling with other people, I'm in. What's being implicitly said there? You're not enough. You're not enough. I want I want you to I, like what else like who else is gonna be there that's gonna I'm then they're like okay okay what are we gonna do okay okay all right now I'm in we should be to like the, the best relationships they're like hey you want to hang out on Friday night like yeah let's do it where do you want to go ah it doesn't matter to me we could watch a movie we could do this this really doesn't matter to me you want some other people to come? Yeah, sure. That's great, too. I guess he made a thorough available. Like, those are the best. Rela- th- those, those are the ones where you go, you're enough. But if it was just us, that would be cool, too. And I think what we have done is we go, we, don't, we really don't think that Jesus is enough, that the God the Father and God the Son is not enough for eternity. So we have to add these other things in. And by the way, you know what this has led us to? This has led us to a Christianity that has been appeared as exclusivist. Because what we have done is we have built this great, wonderful place. And what we have said is, you can't come to this great, wonderful place unless you come through Jesus. And yet we haven't said that the reason why this place is so great and wonderful is because it is Jesus. Not only is he the door, yes, he's the door. But not only is he the door, he's also the house. And so I think about this thing as like, I think if we are more honest with what we're talking about, things of like, why, why would you, why would you want to spend an eternity with Jesus if you don't want to spend an hour with him here? I mean, I'm just an honest question. Like, why would you think that would sound desirable to you? If you don't want to know Jesus here, why do you think you'd want to desire to know him for eternity? Because that's, that's what it is. And so he says, this is what eternal life is. To know the Father, to know the Son. He goes on in his prayer. In verse 4 and 5 then. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me read that again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world, 
right, with you before the world existed. We do not have time to unpack all of that's there, nor do we probably even know all that is there. I think this is one of the clearer pictures that we have here of the Trinity. The Father sent the Son. Let's just check this. Father sent the Son, Son sent the Spirit, right? That's what Jesus says. I have to go so the Spirit can come. And what does the Spirit do? Spirit points people to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus glorifies the Father. What does the Father do? Bring glory to Jesus. You see how beautiful the Trinity works together? Father sends the Son. Son sends the Spirit. Spirit points people to Jesus. Jesus glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. And what he says in this, he says, he goes, he goes, I want I glorify your son so that I may glorify you. I have done the work that you called me to do. The, G, the God, the father had laid out this work for the son to do. And he goes, he did it all. It's interesting because we think if we were in charge, we were the boss. If we were God, we like, we don't have to answer to anybody. And yet what we're, we have here, we go, we have the son coming, fulfilling what the father said to do. And Jesus says this in other places, by the way. He says, I don't do anything I don't see the Father doing. I see the Father do it. I do it. Work has been laid out for me. I accomplish it. That's what I do. And so we go, one of the reasons why Jesus even goes to the cross. We, see, we, that long time we get, Jesus went to the cross because he was thinking of you. And you were on his mind. And he thought about a heaven without you was, was such a horrible idea that he would rather go to the cross and experience that, which I don't think is incredibly biblical. But we go, well, it's one of, the, one of the motivators for Jesus going to the cross. You know what it was? Obedience. Obedience as an act of love. See, we often think in our world, we think, well, did you do that out of duty or did you do that out of love? Did you do that because that's what you're supposed to do or did you do that because you wanted to do that? And you may have had these conversations in your home. You know, maybe you're saying, I just, I wish, I wish you would like help out more around the house. I wish you would cook more. And then the other person cooks more. And they go, hey, look at me, I cook more. And you go, well, you just did that because I said that. And then I want you to want that. <laughs> they, they, they never want that. And what's going on there is that we don't understand obedience as an act of love. We don't understand that, that this idea that doing something out of duty can actually also be doing something out of love. We don't get that. You know why we don't get that? We don't get that because we think love is an emotion and a feeling. I want you to want that. I want you to, to have the warm fuzzies about whatever that thing is. And unless you have that, then, then whatever that was was not a loving action. Why? Because we think that, that we live in a culture where, where love is a feeling and it's an emotion. Now, there is a, it is a feeling and it is an emotion. But God is operating out of a, a covenant relationship definition of love. And when you do it like that, then all of a sudden obedience and duty makes total sense. I do this because I've committed to you. I do this because I committed out of love to you. And although I may not want to, it doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. I do that because that's what I said that I would do. It's a love based not in the feelings. Because love based in feelings, by, never, by the way, will never give you just obedience. It, obedience will never be a loving act. Obedience can only be a loving act in a covenant relationship. 
which is what we see with Jesus. And so then he says, I've done everything. I've done everything. I was super obedient to everything you gave me to do. Now glorify your son. Return me. There's a lot there. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus gave up a glory, laid down a glory in order to take on flesh. And all he's really asking to do is, I want that, I just want it back. Spent 30 some odd years, 33 years possibly without it, and I would like to get back to eternity with it. But it's interesting that really catches me here is that Jesus doesn't glorify his own name. Jesus, the Son of God, the one that it is all about, the one to which all glory is due, refuses to glorify his own name. And yet, and yet, right, we live smack dab in a culture that is what? All about self-glorification. That people would know me, reveal me, and then I would be glorified. And the one who is all about, the only person that could legitimately self-glorified was Jesus. And he says, I don't, I'm not going to do that. My job is to glorify the Father, and the Father then will glorify me. And so Jesus dies this death that we should have died so that we can live the life that we are to live. And so this place of like, we are no longer to live a life about ourselves, but we are to live a life to the glory of God the Father. You know, a lot of times people think that what Christianity is about is getting God to do things for you. Good relationship with God, he does things for you. You're nice to him, he's nice to you. And yet really what the scriptures, and we, even, we talked about in our last series, but this idea that we've died to ourselves and now we're alive in God. Jesus died the death that we're to live so that we may live the life that, we're, that we are to live. But this, this whole idea is that then the life is no longer mine. But now the life is, belongs to God. And to him goes the glory. And so this idea of self-glorification, we go, may it not be for the Christian. And yet, I think a lot, if we're just being honest, I think about a lot of our prayers. When you listen to Jesus' prayers, I think a lot of our prayers is that what we were trying to do is trying to get God onto our own page, right? So we got our life. We got a good idea of how it should go, what God should do, and we just know how he can bless it. Oh, and bless it and bless it. And then we might even go to prayer and say, God, you might butter him up first, right? You know, God, you're a good God, a gracious God, a merciful God who loves all his children. How wonderful and glorious you are and how, how magnificent you are. And then so we've buttered him up real nice. And so he's like, well, I wasn't going to do the prayer. I wasn't going to answer that, but... You said some really nice things about me, and so I'm going to uh, give you approval. Whatever. I don't know what we do. Anyways, so we do that, right? And we go, and then, God, would you please this? And you go, I, I just don't know. Like, you listen to our own prayers. Listen to, you listen to your prayers. How much of your prayers revolve around your life and your glory, if I'm just being honest? Your life, your glory. That you would look good. 
It's interesting because I don't know if you've ever heard the term name it and claim it. Yeah, name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. And so maybe you've heard this kind of, if you run around Christian circles enough, you might have heard this phrase. But the idea is that you name something, and then you put that, like, you say, but it's, it's, it's in the Lord. And so that's, you're, you're claiming it. So you're, I'm going to name it. It's that thing. You're super specific about it. Then you claim it in the Lord. And as, as what it tells us, right, is that a, a doubt, God hates a doubting or wish-washy mind. And so then you, 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 you have faith that it's already yours. So you're like, I'm going, to, I'm going to name that job, I'm going to claim that job, and I'm going to receive that job as if God's already given it to me in the name of the Lord. Name and claim it. But we do similar things, right? God, if you're a good God, then you'll do this for me. And when God doesn't do that for you, then you question his goodness, right? That's, a, that's a more of a, a watered-down, diluted version of the name and claim it. But you know the problem with name it and claim it? Other than it's not biblical. I guess probably one. So one, not biblical. Two. Uh, two is um, nobody will ever name and claim suffering. You know? We always seem to want to name and claim the good stuff. Nobody ever names and claims suffering. What is that, cancer? That's mine. I claim that. <laughs> I claim that name. What is that, a broken relationship? That's mine. Everybody, hands off. That's mine. Name and claim it in the Lord. I've already, I've already believed in the Lord that that is mine. Nobody would ever name and claim suffering. Isn't that odd? Why? Because it's our prayer, our life to our glory. The only way you could ever name and claim or even embrace suffering is if it's somebody else's life to somebody else's glory. And by the way, one person in history did name it and claim it. Jesus, right? The cross, that's mine. Peter, that's not for you right now. Peter's like, I'll go with you. Not for you right now, Peter. I'm going to name and claim it in the name of the Father. Name and claim it. That cross is mine. It's not yours, Peter. It's not yours, James. It's mine. And so we do see someone who has named it and claimed it, Jesus, suffering, Jesus. And how can he do that? Because, once again, his life is living to the glory of the Father. And he goes, and this is going to be how the Father is most glorified. I do believe that God has good plans for you. I think that's very true. I think God has good work for you. It's just he's going to get to decide what that work looks like. And he gets to decide how best he will manifest himself through you. And that may be through pain. That might be through prosperity. That might be through answered prayers. That might be through silence. That might be through health. That might be through sickness. That might be through beautiful, healthy, restored relationships. It might be through broken ones. And so, how do you do that? Well, you commit to God to say, God, my life is your life. And to your glory, may it be lived. And whatever that looks like, you get to define how you want to reveal your life through me. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, just allowing us to even eavesdrop on this conversation between uh, you, Father, and the Son. Thank you that it's been recorded, that we can study. God, I pray for the places in which we are seeking our own glorification. If we're just being honest, we want you to answer our prayers in our wise for our glory. We want you to do things for us so that we will be glorified and in turn you will be glorified too. In reality, you are the one who gets to decide that. May we live lives that are to you and to your glory. And may eternity with you eternally in your glory be more than enough. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.